Hello and welcome to another episode of Stardust MQ, I'm Cameron Furlong. My guest today is not my guest at all. It's actually the guest of our brand new host and producer, Beth Curran. Beth is a fellow astrophysics student at Macquarie University and fellow science communicator. We'll be hearing more from Beth and myself in future episodes of Stardust MQ. And uh, without further ado, I will stop talking now and let Beth crack on with her interview. Hi there. Welcome to another episode of Stardust MQ. My name is Beth Curran and my guest today is Dr. Cormac Purcell. Cormac has a background as a radio astronomer and data scientist. He was at Macquarie as a postdoctoral fellow and lecturer until the middle of 2020 when he made the move into industry at Trillium Technologies. There he is directing large-scale data science projects with real-world applications. In this episode we chat about his path into this field, the value of interdisciplinary science and the possibilities of machine learning. So, hi, thank you so much for um, joining us and giving us your time. Um, I thought maybe we could first talk about what your background is in astronomy, what research you've done, um, why you got into that research, and then what you were doing at Macquarie as well. Great. Thank you very much. Um, I'm delighted to be on the show. It's always very nice to come back to Macquarie, even in a virtual setting, and uh, talk to my old friends and colleagues there. Um, so my background is in uh, experimental astrophysics. I um, did my PhD looking at how um, high-mass stars are formed and how they link to um, other phases of growth in their life cycles. So from, from birth all the way up to, to death, there's different phases of how the star behaves and how it looks observationally. And um, during my PhD, I was interested in um, the phase just before the star starts to emerge from its natal cocoon. Um, and how you would actually trace this and examine the chemistry in, in different ways. And that required me to become a specialist in uh, looking at the sky with radio interferometers, which is something that Australia does extremely well. Yeah, so is that kind of what um, pushed you more towards the radio side of astronomy? Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, I started my PhD around the same time as uh, two other PhD students, um, and it was just almost the luck of the draw, who got what project. Uh, I got the radio one, um, looking uh, at the chemistry around these, these stars, um, using, using a radio telescope called MOPRA, which is um, at Siding Springs, uh, and also the Australian telescope Compact Array, which is uh, an array of six dishes um, up at Narrabri. Um, and it just uh, blossomed from there. Yeah, great. Um, so what was some of the research that you were doing in your time at Macquarie? Um, some of the research was a, continu a continuation of this, but I've had a, 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 little, a little bit of a, a career arc um, where I moved on from uh, studying high-mass stars uh, to use the same specialization in tech technology. So looking, you know, using radio interferometry um, to look at polarization of magnetic fields between stars and galaxies. So even though I was doing the same sorts of observations, I applied it to a slightly different subset of astrophysics. Um, and at Macquarie, I was building uh, research pipelines and tools and doing research around uh, how the magnetic fields of stars and galaxies interacted and uh, what sort of um, shapes it was, it was taking, because everything is structured in the universe, whether it's uh, the small scales of stars up to the large scales of galaxies and spiral arms and even beyond. 
Yeah, great. Um, so you're quite a data-oriented scientist from what I know. And that was that a big part yeah. of your research at Macquarie as well? With You're talking about the pipelines? Yeah, it was. So uh, really, I um, during a lot of my astronomy career, I became quite specialised in um, building surveys because uh, we're all standing on the shoulders of giants. Um, it's very rare that you get a single person, um, you, like someone like Edwin Hubble, who comes to a great con- conclusion based on years of research. Um, all of the big discoveries in astrophysics are now built on using teams and teams of, of people um, and built on survey mode astrophysics. So that means that uh, you know, going and collecting vast amounts of data and looking for the, st- the statistical properties um, and anomalies, especially in that data. And uh, really, we've, we've reached another paradigm now where the data flow is so large that we're finding it difficult as teams of individuals to parse it and to find out um, what it contains and what new and interesting, in, interesting science can be done with it. So we're moving on from you know, just building ordinary survey pipelines, which apply st- statistical techniques to it, uh, to trying to get the computer to do some of that work for us in a machine learning way. Mm. Yeah, that's really exciting. Um... So you're now actually not at Macquarie. You've moved into, I guess, what we'd say is industry. Um, what yes. prompted that transition and how, how have you got from there to here? Well, it's interesting. At the start of my time at Macquarie, um, I, I started to become more of an interdisciplinary scientist rather than just an astrophysics person. Um, I, I realized that a lot of my skills were um, transferable to other do- domains in science as well as to um, you know what we would loosely term term industry um, I realized that a lot of individual scientists are working in a very narrow field and a very narrow area and we all often use similar techniques to analyze our, our data there are great leaps to be had by doing a kind of cross-pollination between different sciences um, and one of the things that really changed the trajectory of my career at Macquarie was um, organizing a conference called the Cross-Sensing Conference. And this is where I got a little grant from the um, New South Wales Office of the Chief Scientist and Engineer um, to run a week-long workshop which brought together multidisciplinary science teams um, who then would uh, work together on uh, projects which were never uh, which they would conceive of during the actual week itself, and also a little bit of workshop uh, work, workshops teaching skills in machine learning. Um, and this was very successful. There was uh, lots of interesting work done over the course of that, that week, and it made me realize that um, there's a much broader world out there than a, a very narrow, um, increasingly focused type of science that I was doing. Um, and that excited me beyond anything else that I had done before. Yeah, that's great. So where are you now? What are you working on at the moment? Oh, yes. Um, so at, at the moment, this prepared me quite well for um, my transition. Uh, I, um, I ended up as part of my last year at Macquarie um, uh, collaborating with an industry organization who runs accelerated research um, sprints. So the traditional academic mode of doing research is get a big research grant or even a small one. Um, use uh, a team in order to break down a problem and uh, PhD students and postdocs and professors tackle that problem um, cutting it up into small small pieces and trying to um, tackle one bit at a a time. 
And um, the company that I now work for builds open source um, science by applying a more Silicon Valley mode. So that really is applying the sorts of very fast industry focused project management uh, that uh, allows you to make rapid progress while still going, going deep. And what, the, um, what Trillium have done is uh, they have built a method in order to um, build public and private partnerships. So taking the best people from universities to define a really good set of questions around which to, to, um, to do some research and then applying these fast modes of agile research uh, in order to get research done extremely fast. So um, in a very intensive few weeks or couple of months, um, apply some uh, best and brightest minds with lots of capital, lots of computing power and expertise um, willing to come in and help um, and really push the, forward the research in a very short time, uh, which would usually take um, you know, six, six months or a year uh, because you're interrupted and the sheer level of focus that our researchers can apply when they're given, you know, time and information and expertise and computing power to draw on means that you can produce this in a much faster time and get really deep and really meaningful results. And so that's what my industry company does is builds an alternative to the research cycle that's present in academia. Um, yeah. And you, you know, collaborates with academia in order to deliver um, answers to the questions. Yeah, sounds like a, a researcher's dream to pump something out that fast. Yeah, <laughs> no, yeah. It can it's be great. an arduous process in academia sometimes. But... Exactly, yeah. Yeah, okay, that's great. Um, so uh, you're working on a project at the moment or you've just finished working on a project with um, using AI to look at bushfire spreading. That's 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 correct. Yeah. So the 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 major project that we're well well known for is um, something called Frontier Development Labs. And this has been running um, with uh, NASA and the SETI Institute in the USA um, uh, at Silicon Valley, um, and also with European Space Agency and Oxford University in Europe. Um, and these Frontier Development Lab projects are a, a set of research sprints that last for eight weeks um, and usually address some problem that can be tackled using space-based data. So it might be satellites like the Hubble Space Telescope looking out, or it might be the European Space Agency's Copernicus Network looking in, uh, looking down on, on the Earth, um, and also uh, by the application of machine learning or artificial intelligence. And really this is, you know, it, it, people think it's a, it's a very, uh, it's, a, it, it's a term that's filled with mystique, but it's glorified curve fitting to um, somebody who knows it. Mm. What makes it slightly special is that um, using the techniques developed for AI, you can deal with huge data sets, which is the big problem that everyone has now. Mm. Um, and uh, when I, in the last six months of my tenure at Macquarie, um, I was collaborating with Frontier Development Lab to build a new program called the DataQuest. And this was um, because of the time that was in it and because we just had these huge bush fires, it was focused on science questions around fires and how do we help mitigate them in the future. And that was done um, a, a three-week research sprint uh, during um, August of 2020. Great. So what came out of that? Can you tell us a bit about the results and um, yeah. what, what programs were developed? Um, yeah, yeah, no, no. It's so um, 
So the idea here is that we start off um, by bringing together the scientific community around, around fires and trying to figure out um, what are the major questions that need to be answered. Uh, we call these our challenge questions. And through a series of workshops, we have some of the um, major experts in Australia and New, New Zealand on, uh, on fires figure out what these teams are. And we came up with three, three teams. And these were, uh, the first one was fuel assessment. So looking at um, uh, how much fuel there is in the landscape available to burn. Another was early detection of fires. So using orbital assets, satellites, uh, in order to de de detect fires as early as possible. Uh, and then also looking at fire behavior. Can we investigate um, how to use remote sensing data in order to, to um, better predict the, the, the spread or the behavior of a fire? And then out of that, we recruited four teams of PhD students and postdocs. Um, which were put on to looking at uh, fuel moisture content, how to um, extract that from satellites, um, building fire risk maps and fire progression models um, using a fully end-to-end -end machine learning process, and then de de detecting fires uh, from orbit uh, and looking at the signature of um, pyrocumulonimbus clouds. Um, and we set these um, fantastic teams of researchers free and they uh, produced um, four machine learning workflows that um, can be then expanded a little bit uh, further in our subsequent efforts, which we're just about to start. Wow, so that's, yeah, that's really amazing. So a lot of research happening in a small space and pumping out some really good stuff. Have you um, been able to use this in practice at all yet, or is it still kind of in the prototyping phase? Um, yeah, no, that, that's a really good question, actually. So one of the, the things, so we, we had these research sprints and um, we had our teams um, write up some technical memos and uh, all of the research is open source. So they're about to be published now. Um, and we did a showcase um, in the September afterwards uh, where we had a great deal of engagement from the fire services and some of the larger agencies like um, Bureau of Meteorology and Geoscience Australia who provide lots of the data for um, fire prediction and uh, to, to the fire agencies fighting fires. Um, and after that, we came to realize that really we needed a much better understanding of how fires are fought operationally. Um, what are actually the needs of the firefighters on the ground? So as a direct follow-up to the data quest, um, we ran something called a concurrent design workshop at um, the University uh, Australian National Concurrent Design Facility down in Canberra. This is a, a, a research space that's usually used to design satellites. And the special thing about this is that it's, it's designed specifically um, to bring multidisciplinary groups into the same room and uh, use particular methods of uh, facilitation to get them to understand each other's language. Now, in terms of a satellite, you might have um, thermal experts who uh, design how to cool a satellite, or you might have power experts who um, figure out how to route power around to the different components. Well, here we had a bushfire systems where we had um, users, that is the um, firefighters on the fire ground itself, um, telling us about what their actual needs were, um, and at the same time, we had tech, technology specialists who were looking at communications, who were looking at data flows, who were looking at um, what would be possible in order to address those, those needs. And we're just about to release a report which synthesizes all of that um, and makes recommendations for the future. And that's uh, written in um, 
consultation with the ACT Fire Service and then going out for review to a whole lot of other agencies. Uh, so based on this, we are running another uh, big research sprint. It's going to be towards the end of this, this year, and then it'll implement some of the recommendations that uh, that report um, has identified as being most impactful. Amazing. So you've kind of gone from science to um, investigating the practical needs to then implementing it in what just over a year in just over a year yes. yeah, yeah that's so yeah. exciting um yeah. where can people access the report when it comes out if they're interested in in reading further yeah so we'll um we'll be putting it onto our data quest web website um and uh, that's um fdlausnz.org i think um, so that's the, the main DataQuest website. It's, um, it, so it will be there and our next initiatives will, will be there as well. Um, and the Australian arm of our organization is expanding. So we're running some other interesting pro pro programs. I'll give you an idea of the sorts of things that we will, will be doing. Um, at the moment, we are just spinning up something called the Blue Carbon Data DataQuest. So it's a similar format as the bushfires. Um, but instead, what we're looking at is we're looking at the carbon uh, cycle in the ocean and uh, potential ways to restore and use that uh, in order to um, sequester car carbon over the next 10, 15, 15 years uh, and increase fish stocks um, and also generally repair some of the, the damage um, that's happened because of our changing climate. Uh, one of the issues at the moment is that um, there are lots of people who are doing excellent research in this area. But the data itself is um, very fractured in the sense that some agencies hold some data for particular regions, others hold others, and um, really what we need is a global effort. So we're trying to catalyze this, and this is a very big elephant that we're trying to take a bite out of, but we're, we're hoping that uh, we can catalyze a, a big worldwide um, effort there. Um, and uh, there's a few other, other projects. We've just um, built a machine learning system to examine floods. Um, from orbit. So we're building machine learning out on the edge, but it's the true edge in the sense that it's, uh, uh, it's, gone up, it's going up to, to uh, space. And um, it's addressing a problem of uh, how do you get Earth sensing data down from a satellite through a very slim straw. So the connection to most satellites is actually very narrow and it's very difficult to get maps that are, are taken uh, down. And um, how do you take, take that, do the machine learning on the satellite itself, and then uh, take a very compressed data product um, that comes down rather than having to download the whole data set, which can take up to um, 48 hours. So instead of having um, a 48 hour time lag to get a map of an area that's flooded into the hands of disaster responders, um, we can do this in uh, less than half an hour. Amazing. Um, so you, you sort of already talked about this, but how do you feel that your background in astronomy has then been able to feed into this research? And then I guess also your background in machine learning and data management, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so it's it's interesting. So uh, as part of my job, I wear many hats. Um, the technical background is incredibly useful. Um, I, it, I work at um, a level where I often have to pitch for funding um, and at the same time I do the funding part but I also manage tech technical teams so I need to be able to um, put my hands into the code and uh, try and figure out what each of the, the teams are doing um, 
and help them with uh, their technical uh, reports. At the same, same time, um, I need to organize meetings and talk to shareholders or to, to st stakeholders and talk to funders um, and build these collaborations. And actually that tends to be what you do as an academic any, anyway. So the, the general skill set of an academic comes in very useful because we tend to be um, very good at multiple different types of, of jobs. Um, I think conference organization, so that um, cross-sensing conference that I organized, uh, that was a real um, eye-opener in terms of doing multiple roles, and it really helped prepare me for my, my current, current role. Um, and yeah, so it's, it's a, 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 oh, and the, la the last thing is most academics um, learn to write very precisely and learn to write compelling prose in order to make cases. And part of my job is to apply for funding, just like an, an academic would. So in many ways, I have an academic position, um, but it's, uh, it just happens to be with an industry um, organization. Hmm. Amazing. Um, you're quite passionate about machine learning and AI and the possibilities of that. You've been talking to us already about some of the things that you've been able to do with it. What are your like dreams and visions for where that can take us in the future? Yeah, well, I'm also quite uh, skeptical about AI. Um, I, there's a lot of hype and um, it's, it's a powerful tool. Uh, the, the major advantages of machine learning are uh, the ways in which it can ingest multiple forms of data um, with not too much effort. And so it can learn the features in a very broad data set. And um, uh, it, so you can imagine a traditional pipeline for um, producing a data product from a telescope, say. Uh, a lot of the equations and a lot of the um, a lot of the, the processing is hard-coded in. You apply particular processing steps. They conform to some particular model or a, a particular curve. You can think of machine learning systems as code which learns how to program itself. Because when you step back and look at it, that's exactly what is happening. Machine learning systems learn the right formulas and the right curves to apply to the data in order to get a particular out outcome, as long as you can, you can train it. And there are new areas of AI that are, um, you know, that are harnessing the ability to find patterns so that you can dis discover uh, the interesting science in your data um, without having to wade through it. Uh, so it's really, it can be a decision support tool as well as an analysis tool in itself. Um, so, but there, there's, there's a danger with this as well that you start losing sense of the data. And there's a particular, um, a uh, new area of machine learning management um, called MLOps or machine learning operations, uh, which is now coming to the fore. There are many startup companies um, writing MLOps tools, and it's the equivalent of um, DevOps for or de development ops for, for soft software. Because if you're taking a machine learning system that's going into production, um, you have to not only manage the software which it's being deployed on or it's being deployed with, but you have to manage iterations of the data and the models and examine it for biases. And um, it can get quite complicated. Uh, and it really is on the people like us who run machine learning systems to do the job really, really well. So I'm quite excited about all of that tooling that we're now getting into. Um, and my other project that's kind of connected with what, what I'm doing 
um, but separate. And it also was started at Macquarie is uh, to look at um, the shark management strategy of New South, South Wales and figure out how to use AI for um, identifying dangerous sharks. Yeah, so I was going to ask you about that. You're doing research into sharks. Um, yes. So you're very interdisciplinary. You're an astrobiologist now, I guess. Um, or astro-ecologist, well, I guess. Astro-ecologist, yeah, someone yeah. else coined, coined that, that one. Oh, um, okay. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so what's the, you said it's identifying dangerous yes. areas? Yes, so, so uh, myself, along with uh, my research partners, Andrew Walsh and Andrew Colfax, um, we, uh, we have a collaboration with the New South Wales Department of Primary Industries and the fisheries um, group within the, the New South Wales DPI um, they uh, are responsible for the shark management strategies in New South Wales. Uh, and what that means is they, um, they run uh, shark netting programs. They run um, uh, baited drum, drum lines, uh, which catch and tag sharks uh, in order to track sharks better and to manage um, human wildlife conflicts. So um, the idea is primarily to keep um, beach users safe. Uh, but also to figure out what the ecosystem is doing and whether sharks are in danger or whether the entire ecosystem along the coast is in, 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 in danger as well. And one of the primary methods that they've been trialing over the last uh, few years since uh, 2016 um, is uh, using drones in order to detect the shapes of sharks um, which are just under the water. Um, and these drones are, are run by Surf Lifesaving New South, South Wales. Um, and essentially take a flight every 20, 30 minutes, uh, go up and down just outside the shore break on a beach um, and uh, with cameras gazing directly down and then try and pick out uh, whether you see a shark or a turtle or a swimmer or a ray um, and if there's any um, potential for conflict there. And um, uh, one of the major problems is that they find it very difficult if you, to actually identify what species a shadow is. Um, you can imagine it's quite a difficult task because uh, what happens is the drone is flying at a height of 60 meters. You have a 1080p video feed that uh, streams live back to the pilot. And the pilot is using a handheld con controller to actually fly the, the, the drone, which requires some concentr concentration, while at the same time looking at a small screen um, on top of that uh, control stick. And then at the same time trying to pick out a shape on a screen to figure out whether it's a white shark, whether it's a bull shark, whether it's a harmless wobbegong, or whether it's a, a, a spotted guitar fish, which is often mistaken for, for a shark, but is a harmless thing. Um, and you get lots of uh, beach clo closures because uh, they uh, misidentify um, some, something and they're quite cautious, which is you know, what they should, should be doing. Um, and so machine learning has the possibility of providing a decision support tool for that process. So by putting a box around a particular de detected thing and saying it's definitely a white shark or it's we're 90% confident it's a white shark or a bull shark or this is a ray. Um, and so that's what we've been working on. Amazing. That's so, so interesting. So it'll be exciting to see where that goes and as it continues yeah. to be implemented, how it, how it changes our beaches. And yeah, well, we've just written a paper on how to do it well, um, and that should be coming out in the, in the next couple of months. Um, so we've really taken a very careful approach to figuring out when we can do a good job, because you can imagine weather conditions make a difference to whether, you know, a person or even uh, an AI tool can figure out what's a shark or not. 
um, as can um, the turbidity of the water, uh, as the lighting conditions, whether there's glare, whether there's lots of confusing objects like bits of seaweed or reef and so on. And so we've mapped all of that parameter space out. And currently um, we're uh, building a, another testing application, which will be um, tested at uh, up to 40 New South Wales beaches in the coming summer um, and hopefully rolling out further from, from there. Great, that's so exciting. Well, thank you for telling us about that. Um, I did wanna ask, do you have any advice for people in either astronomy or in other science fields um, who want to potentially do things like you're doing or, or move away from traditional academia? Um, what advice would you give to people who want to pursue that kind of thing? I think there's only one bit of general advice I, I, would, I would give, um, and that's uh, to look at every potential meeting as an opportunity. Like it's, it's very easy in academic life as a postdoc or a PhD student, because everyone is very um, is working hard towards a goal and, and often very time poor, um, to look at uh, cross disciplinary work or meeting other academics who don't quite do what they what they do as a as, as a distraction. Mm -hmm. um, I think it makes a difference to go into meetings and accept meetings and even initiate meetings with um, people at the other side of many different fences. Um, treat that as an opportunity and uh, you never know what's going to come down the pipe, pipeline. Uh, I, I could never have imagined myself in the position that I'm in at the moment, but um, and it was the most unlikely things that have led to my current career, career path. I think it just requires a little bit of an open mind and be willing to change tack. Stardust MQ is a podcast made with the support of the Macquarie University Department of Physics and Astronomy and the Macquarie University Physics and Astronomy Society. Thanks to Oliver Doherty for editing this episode. Our intro music is by Poddington Bear and our outro theme is from Ketsa. I'll talk to you next time.